Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Buter, Managing Editor of No Film School. I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It's September 24th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll bring you some news about the Emmy winners, how indie filmmakers are shaking up the advertising industry, a report from the Camden International Film Festival, Panasonic's new GH5, and in Ask No Film School, the difference between agents and managers. And as always, more news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly. We are back in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, after a couple shows recorded in Toronto. And we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We often say on the show that we'll follow up on stories as they progress. And I feel like the theme of this particular show is what happened next after some of the uh, stories we've reported in recent months. Dot, dot, dot. Dun, dun, dun. So most recently, of course, as I mentioned, we just got back from the Toronto International Film Festival, who uh, have since announced their prize winners from this year. Emily, do you want to let us know about some of the awards? Sure. So for the past 25 years, the festival has had a special set of prizes chosen by the International Federation of Film Critics. This year, their prize for the Discovery Program was awarded to Nairobi-based filmmaker Mabithi Masaya for Kati Kati. And from among the special presentations, an award went to Chinese filmmaker Fang Zhao Gang for I Am Not Madame Bovary, which, by the way, is supposed to have an incredible breakout performance from its female lead, who people are hailing as the next Jennifer Lawrence. Wow. The Grosch People's Choice Award for Best Narrative went to Damien Chazelle's musical La La Land. For Best Documentary, it went to Raoul Peck's I Am Not Your Negro, which I'm very excited to see at New York Film Festival. Me too. And the best Midnight Madness film went to Ben Wheatley's Free Fire. Which is one that I really wanted to see and I didn't know was screening there until the day that we recorded the final podcast from TIFF. It's a cool conceit, right? It's a shootout in one building or something. Yeah. And it's got an awesome cast. Apparently the people of Toronto agree. I am Toronto. Baby! So also at TIFF, the director Jill Soloway gave a masterclass where she talked about her work in the context of the female gaze in contrast to the male gaze or the point of view that basically most mainstream movies portray. And there's been a lot of writing about this topic and sort of debate about what it all means. And in in Jill Soloway's opinion, she said, I want you to see the female gaze as a conscious effort to create empathy as a political tool. So apparently her approach is working because her Amazon show Transparent has helped bring dialogue about trans people into the common discourse and onto the political stage, at least here in the U.S. and I suspect abroad as well. And the show just won two more Emmy Awards during this past Sunday's ceremony. Definitely the most talked about Emmy moment, at least in my Facebook feed, was when Soloway yelled, topple the patriarchy during her acceptance speech for directing for a comedy series. Unrelated to Jill's show, but related to its topics, Matthew Heineman's Cartel Land won three Emmys, including for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking. One of those awards was for Outstanding Sound Editing for a Nonfiction Program. And on that team was Joanna Fang, who I know from Film School at NYU. Um, she did Foley for the project, and it turns out that she is the first trans person to win a primetime Emmy ever, which is absolutely incredible. At film school, she worked on a bunch of my friends' films, and she was always the go-to Foley artist. So it's awesome to see her making it out there in the world. Yeah, I also have to give credit to the Emmys and to their organizers because um, Joanna only recently came out as trans, 
And she told No Film School that the Emmy people were very accommodating and they changed her name, which was previously Jonathan, uh, on a lot of their printed and digital materials. So congratulations, Joanna, and congratulations to the Emmys for, you know, being up to speed with the times. So moving back into festival world, and again, following up on some things that we've often said on the show, we've talked here many times about the importance of sometimes going to small festivals. Maybe smaller festivals are more relevant for your film than a big festival like Sundance, and also how critical it is to network at these things, even though that might not come naturally to some of us. And I have some kind of, I have a a personal real world example of this that I wanted to share um, with everybody. And it's also related to the news. So as many of you know, I went straight from the Toronto International Film Festival to the Camden International Film Festival, which is in gorgeous Camden, Maine, because there's this whole kind of like festival circuit. And some people, when their films are on the festival circuit, they go from fest to fest to fest. I happen to be on a teeny tiny flying school bus nine person plane from Toronto with Morgan Spurlock and his producer Jeremy Shelnick whose film just had premiered at TIFF and Emily did a great article with them about it Um, and then we flew together to Camden which is you know in itself a cool networking opportunity but then the at the bed and breakfast I was staying at I came out in the morning, breakfast time, there was this, the table, one table in the sun, and it wasn't that warm, so I was happy to, uh, that the gentleman at the table asked me to join him for breakfast, and I sat down, we started talking, turns out this guy is an executive at HBO. We talked for an hour, he gave all sorts of advice, I told him about No Film School, and he wanted to make sure that I told our listeners to get their films made, no matter what it takes, it was very inspiring. And you know, this guy lives in New York, but I would never get a chance to sit and have a casual breakfast with him for an hour in New York because he's very, very in demand. And instead, we had this incredible, personal, organic interaction and ended up having breakfast together the next day, too. And this is the kind of thing that can happen if you get yourselves to these smaller, more intimate festivals that have real opportunities to connect with people. The best event I attended at Camden was a masterclass with cinematographer Kirsten Johnson, who's shot almost 30 films for the likes of Laura Poitras and Michael Moore. And she recently directed her own doc camera person that premiered at Sundance. We actually have a video interview with her from there. She gave some really incredible practical advice for shooters. Talked a lot about when you're with the camera, negotiating your body and space in relation to your subjects and how your presence affects a scene no matter how unobtrusive you try to be. So I'll have a write-up of that session on the site soon. The reason the HBO executive who I mentioned was there is that the centerpiece of the festival is the Points North pitch, where six teams of filmmakers that participated in the Points North Fellowship pitch their works in progress in front of a live audience to a panel of funders, broadcasters, distributors, and producers. I highly recommend that anybody that has a work in progress documentary film applies to this pitch process next year, because like I said, they bring some really high level people there. This year's pitch winner was The Feeling of Being Watched, directed by Asia Bundawi. She is a Chicago-based filmmaker who started looking into the rumors of surveillance inside her mostly Arab neighborhood, and she discovered that her hometown was the subject of the largest FBI terrorism investigation conducted before 9-11. So the film's about her own investigation into why this blanket surveillance took place and whether or not it's still happening today. Because of the support that the uh, film received there, I would definitely be on the lookout for it in this next year. It's an amazing festival, very thoughtful, 
definitely recommend it. And the organizers are film people. So actually a film produced by the festival's managing director, Caroline Von Kuhn, which was originally titled The Fixer and now is called Burden Country, just got picked up for distribution by Samuel Goldwyn Films. Yeah, it's incredible. Caroline's a friend of ours, and I actually interviewed the director and the lead actor of the film at Tribeca this year. So we'll link to that uh, article on the post associated with this podcast. And I just want to say congratulations, Caroline, and thank you, along with the festival organizers, Sean Flynn and Ben Fowley, for having me. I already can't wait for next year. We also reported a couple months ago about the Mashable article that broke the startling statistics about the gender gap in commercial directing, namely that less than 7% of commercial directors are women and less than 3% of creative directors at ad agencies are women. This matters to us because mixing independent films with commercial directing is how many indie directors are able to make a sustainable living. So one of my favorite filmmakers, Alma Harrell, who was quoted in the Mashable Post and is the only female to have directed a, a campaign for Stella Artois, decided to do something about it. Last week, Harrell and advertising executive PJ Pereira launched a new initiative called Free the Bid to get ad agencies to commit to including at least one female director in every bid. So here's how the industry works. Production companies submit director reels to ad agencies for each project based on the creative spec provided by the agency. At the bidding stage, the agency then presents usually three directors to a client for every commercial. But what the studies have shown is that female directors are seldom included in those pitches, so they don't even get the chance to be considered for hire. So what Free the Bid is asking that agencies do is simply include a woman for consideration in their bids, with no obligation to hire them. Several major agencies have already signed on, and they have big supporters like Spike Jones behind them. So you can go to freethebid.com to learn more, see the 120 female directors that the team is recommending, or maybe become one of those represented directors yourself. On a sadder note, Curtis Hansen, the director of L.A. Confidential and Wonder Boys, died on Tuesday. Our writer, Scout Tafoya, wrote an extremely informative obituary detailing Hansen's rise through the ranks of Hollywood. Interestingly, he was a self-taught man who never went to film school, and yet he worked extremely hard and was very, very persistent, and studios boondoggled him time and time again, setting him up for projects that never got produced and were handed off to other other directors, but he had enough persistence to get his voice heard, and we think that should be a lesson to all aspiring filmmakers. R.I.P. Kurt Hansen. And moving on to some gear news. Hey, this is Charles with this week's gear news. So the biggest news of the week, the unavoidable news of the week, is that GoPro has come out with the Hero 5, the Hero 5 Session, and an $800 foldable Karma drone. This is big news for lots of reasons. One of them is that GoPro's been kind of quiet lately, and then a lot of the competitors have been coming out with some features missing in the GoPro lineup, like image stabilization. And uh, there have been a lot of rumors going around about the Karma drone for more than a year now, so it's excited to see it all out in the field. The biggest news with the Karma is all the great thought that went into its design. It's foldable. It fits in a small backpack. Uh, It has the equivalent of a DJI Osmo stabilizer built in. So you can fly it and then land it and take the stabilizer out of the drone and wander around doing stabilized handheld shots. So it's all in one kit with DJI. You've got to buy both the drone and the stabilizer separately. The Karma controller also has an integrated screen, so you don't have to use your own smartphone, which is actually kind of nice. However, if you wanted a second controller, like you wanted the person with the Karma controller to fly the drone and you wanted a camera operator, you can install an app on another phone and have a second operator using their phone. So it's a really well thought through design. 
What's interesting is that it's really well thought through from a like filmmaking standpoint. There's a lot of great features there, but it doesn't have follow me, which is sort of what you think of when you think about like the GoPro drone, like a mountain biker out alone in the woods, having the drone follow them to get like real sick sh- jump shots. But that's okay because it's a filmmaking podcast and it's got all the features we want for like going out and doing that. It's only a 20 minute battery, which seems frustrating until you realize that 20 minutes is actually a lot of time to get a lot of good shots. Extra batteries are about 150 bucks. Uh, it's super exciting. At the same time, they also upgraded the Hero 5. Now there's no longer silver versus black. There's just the Hero 5. Um, it's actually the Hero 5 black, but it's just the one camera. It's now natively waterproof, which is awesome. Uh, it's got voice control, which is great. It has optical image stabilization, which is great. It's got pretty much everything all the competitors have, except Garmin also includes like heart rate. But I don't know that you need a heart rate display on top of your footage. So I'm kind of fine with not having that. And uh, they also updated the session. And from what I hear, the session, which is the smaller GoPro that doesn't have a viewfinder, the image quality is pretty much almost as good as the Hero 5. So you go to the Hero 5, if you want a viewfinder, so you can see what you're framing. With the session, you just use your phone as a viewfinder. And uh, it's pretty exciting, especially that it's natively waterproof. I mean, if you're going to go diving with it, you'll use the case. But for uh, splashing around, native waterproof is great. Other big news of the week, the Panasonic GH5 gives us everything we want. Uh, 4K up to 60 frames a second. Uh, but even better than that, you can do 10-bit 422 4K. That's only up to 30 frames per second. You know, much like Canon, Panasonic also has a dedicated video line, the DVX200, all the way up to the Varicam platform. But with Canon, a lot of times it seems like they're deliberately keeping filmmaker-friendly tools out of the cheaper uh, stills cameras. But Panasonic's really going for it. And this is a camera where the body will be 1000 or $1,100. And you can easily adapt it to pretty much any lens you want, including PL. And you're getting internal 10-bit 422 4K recording. I mean, that's that's awesome of Panasonic. They're also really great at the ergonomics. And all reports are that this is going to continue to be very similar to the GH4, which has been a really popular body uh, with filmmakers. Great that they're going to have 4K 60 frames per second. That's available early 2017. The last bit of news, I just felt like we covered the big companies, GoPro and Panasonic. So I wanted to mention that SERP, who make uh, motion controllers for time-lapse, have come out with a new wire rig. Time-lapse isn't as interesting to filmmakers, except if you think about the ability time-lapse gives you to get really amazing action shots and really amazing establishing shots that you might not be able to get otherwise. So it is like a useful tool. And uh, SERP makes great motion control heads, and they've added a wire rig that lets you get shots up to 300 feet of wire control. So you go out, you string up wires across a valley or across the top of a factory, and then you can slowly move the camera across it and get some shots that you really can't get any other way. A drone could be too noisy or, especially if it's inside, too dangerous. And uh, the smoothness and control is really great. The other thing I think is really exciting about the SERP slingshot is two years ago, they released it as a DIY set of plans. And then they used the feedback from the users uh, to build a mass-produced version. So I think that's pretty cool. And that is the gear news of the week. And here are your upcoming deadlines for grants and festivals this week. We talked about this opportunity before when the submissions initially opened, but the grant deadline for the Karen Schmier Film Editing Fellowship comes next Friday on September 30th. 
Just as a refresher, the Karen Schmier Film Editing Fellowship is in its seventh year now. To apply, applicants must have edited at least one feature documentary, 60 minutes or longer, but no more than three, and plan on living in the U.S. between March 2017 and March 2018. The fellowship assists emerging documentary editors by developing their talent, expanding their creative community, and furthering their career aspirations. They do this by awarding benefits including mentorship with veteran editors, passes, badges, and or admission to a number of festivals and events, including South by Southwest, the KSFEF Sundance Institute's Contemplating the Cut Workshop, Stranger Than Fiction, and what Liz was just talking about, the Camden International Film Festival. In addition to the badge, you also get travel, accommodations, and per diem to two of the aforementioned events, a credential to the Sundance Film Festival, an IDA one-year membership, an ACE special membership, an $1,000 cash award, a $250 gift certificate at Powell's Books, and a portrait session with professional photographers. I love the Powell's Books. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, random, but awesome. Well, this is like a huge prize package. Yeah. And the award, which is named after editor Karen Schmier, who sadly was killed in a hit-and-run accident at the age of 39, is very prestigious and definitely something to apply to if you're an editor. Our festival deadline this week is for the San Francisco Virtual Reality International Film Festival and Expo. That also has a deadline on Friday, September 30th. This is the premier virtual reality international film festival and expo. It highlights the best virtual reality filmmakers, as well as the latest VR 360 video technology from around the world. So we're used to seeing sort of VR sections in film festivals, and not even sections so much as what seems or what has been up to this point, sort of a novelty. Like small showcases. Yeah, like showcases. So... I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing more VR film festivals pop up around the country, around the world. And this is definitely one to pay attention to as far as prestige goes. The one at IFP Film Week is called the Virtual Reality Garden. Yeah, exactly. Which I love. <laughs> so, and that's just like a half of a room that isn't even sectioned off. That's like a part of a cafe. Yeah. So this is truly a film festival highlighting VR pieces and filmmakers. It provides audiences with the ability to experience new, unique VR content in a festive environment, hopefully not one where they'll have to wait four hours to get into an exhibit. As I was poking around the site looking for an entrance fee, I couldn't really find any, so I'm not sure exactly if that means that there's no submission fee, but I think that if they weren't advertising it at the time of the application, because I actually went in and looked at what it took to apply, then there's serious reason to assume that there is no festival entrance fee. So if any of you actually do apply for this, it would be nice if you let us know. So we usually find our our questions for Ask No Film School on the boards, but this week we actually got an email directly to all of our inboxes from a man named Dan Erickson, who emailed us to ask, what's the difference between an agent and a manager in terms of like the practicalities of what they can do for a filmmaker? And he also wanted to know, when in your career should you begin to try to get one? So John actually wrote an article detailing some of this this week out of TIFF. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, I just came out with this article yesterday, and it took me a long time to compile the information because there was just so much that these panelists talked about at the um, industry panel at TIFF which was solely based around what you should do with your short film after you've actually submitted it and it's been accepted to festivals. The panelists were a group of managers, sort of uh, financiers and distributors. And one of the panelists, Amot Zakai, who's the VP of management at Echo Lake Entertainment, actually went so far as to directly answer this question. 
the company that he works for, Echo Lake Entertainment, is responsible for such films as Nebraska and The Skin I Live In, so they're no joke. But one thing to really mention in this is that he was at the festival along with the rest of the panelists actively scouting shorts to find new talent. That's important because Dan asks when you should try to find a manager or an agent. And I think that if you play your cards right, and if you have something that you're really proud of, and that's something that you've worked on very hard, you should actually be looking for managers or agents to come to you, which is something that Mr. Zakai said in his panel. And one way to get noticed is by having your short at a festival. If you don't want to go through the festival route, then take the time to do the research on management companies and submit your screeners and reels to them online, or you can do it archaically through a DVD with your reel or your screener via snail mail. When we're talking about what the difference is between an agent and a manager and which you should look for first, Sakai said flat out that you should be looking to find a manager first. He described the difference in this way. With agents, especially the ones that work in the big companies like CAA and WME and all those, these people make 250000 a year before bonus. A bonus can take them up to $500,000 a year. Will they focus on you? That's the big question you have to ask yourself. And if you truly believe that they can, then great, you should sign with them. It's usually better when the agent comes running after you as opposed to you running after an agent. Historically, they work harder that way. He went on to say, I feel as a manager that you should sign with a manager first because we have less clients and we see it more as a long-term thing. We're not transactional as in here's the product, sell it. We're more in here. We want to develop it with you and we want to grow with you. So the big takeaway for me from this was that agents may have ulterior motives in trying to sign you, that ulterior motive being financial gain for themselves. As an emerging filmmaker, your skills will doubtlessly need some honing and you may not be ready for the type of project that an agent wants you to do so he can get a bigger percentage of your pay. Once you feel more established in the film world, then you may be interested in also hiring an agent to help you find some bigger jobs. But my takeaway from this panel was that really managers are the more important thing for emerging filmmakers to be looking for. So that's really interesting. And what a coincidence that you were just at this panel. But you know what I'm missing from that is the sort of the the direct answer to the question, what's the difference between what an agent and manager does for a filmmaker? Well, I think that Zakai described it as if the manager was more someone there who's going to be working with you to build your project, while an agent is more trying to sell your project. Right. It's more of a long tail, um, like in it for the long haul with you throughout your career. Right. So a manager will be there to develop scripts with you, to give you feedback on what you're doing, whereas an agent is just active. It's it's more transactional in nature. Um, Advocating on your behalf in, in business yeah, situations. Yeah, trying to find you projects as well as trying to sell your scripts or trying to sell your work. Cool. Thanks for the question, Dan. Thanks for emailing us. Yeah, and please continue. Uh, we encourage you guys to email us all. It's great looking through the boards, but there's something more personal and more exciting about getting actual feedback from you guys through our inbox. And uh, those were the ones that will definitely rise to the top. So keep on keeping on. You can find all our contacts on the about page on the site. And of course, we're also all on Twitter. So now moving into some movies opening this week, coming to Amazon Prime Instant on Friday, September 23rd, you can finally get the chance to see Sicario on a streaming platform. Denis Villeneuve's latest thriller about an idealistic FBI agent, played by Emily Blunt, who is enlisted by a government task force to aid in the escalating war against drugs at the border area between the U.S. and Mexico. It also stars Josh Brolin and the awesome Benicio Del Toro, and we have tons of articles that sort of examine some of Sicario's key filmic strategies on the site, and it's something that's been really popular among our readers and listeners. So, 
check it out on Amazon Prime if you haven't seen it yet. And hitting Netflix on Friday, September 23rd is Audrey and Daisy, a really disturbing but important Netflix original documentary about two teenage girls from opposite sides of the country who were both sexually assaulted by boys they knew and both became suicidal when they were harassed online afterwards and at school. It's directed by John Shank and Bonnie Cohen, and it's been getting great reviews. They're great filmmakers and such a timely topic. Speaking of disturbing documentaries, uh, I talked a little bit about this one on the show last week because I saw it at TIFF. Uh, Coming out on Showtime on Sunday, September 25th is Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. It is one of the craziest true crime dramas that you will ever see. Absolutely mind-blowingly insane and freaky and a still ongoing investigation. We have an interview podcast coming out on Monday with its Oscar-nominated director, Nanette Burstein. Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that in addition to Indie Film Weekly, we often do interview shows, one-on-ones with directors, producers, writers, you know, important people in films. And uh, we're going to start rolling those out regularly again this coming Monday. And finally, coming to theaters on Friday, September 23rd, GOATS! <laughs> Goats are coming to theaters? Goats are coming to the theaters. No, this is Goat, Andrew Neal's drama about a 19-year-old boy reeling from a terrifying assault who enrolls into college with his brother and pledges the same fraternity. What happens there in the name of brotherhood tests the boy and his loyalty to his brother in brutal ways. An interesting fact about that is that um, the original source material was a book written by an NFS writer, Brad Land. It was called Goat. I think everybody should read it. And it was adapted for the screen by Andrew Neal. And he contributes regularly to No Film School still, right? Yeah. The movie is supposed to be sort of like a harrowing look into the fraternity system. And it's it's garnered such attention for its sort of brutalness at film festivals like Sundance, South by Southwest. And we actually have a few interviews with Andrew Neal. Micah Van Hove interviewed him at Sundance and... We have an interview with the writer David Gordon Green coming out tomorrow. So Brad Land wrote the book and David Gordon Green adapted it for the script. And Andrew Neal directed it and Micah Van Hove interviewed Andrew Neal. (laughs) And tomorrow, the interview with David Gordon Green, who is not Andrew Neal or Brad Land, is being conducted by... Who? <laughs> James Franco, because he's in the movie and he has 5,000 different <laughs> jobs and does 5,000 different things anyway. James Franco is one of the few people we know who is not a No Film School writer, but indeed the interview was conducted by Dylan Dempsey, and you can read it on nofilmschool.com. That about clears everything up for me. There you have it, guys. <laughs> IFP's Film Week, Project Forum, and Story Forward Conference are still going on here in New York through Saturday, and we'll have a bunch of posts on nofilmschool.com from their various excellent panels and talks that are specifically geared toward independent filmmakers, so be sure to check those out, along with everything else we've talked about on the show at nofilmschool.com. And I also saw my first movie at New York Film Festival on Tuesday, so we're going to be coming out with sort of rundowns of the Q&As after and interviews with the film directors that are showcased at the New York Film Festival this year. It's a nonstop film party here at No Film School. I actually thought about it, and I had been to three separate film festivals in five days last week. Which I think is that's a new record. Damn, crazy. And Liz, you've been to, I guess, like <sighs> five in the past five days, or you will if you go to New York Film Festival or IFP in the next two days. Look what we do for you guys. Yeah. 
freaking tired anyway <laughs> and excited so thank you so much for listening this has been another indie film weekly again you can read all these articles on nofilmschool.com please subscribe to the no film school podcast especially to get those upcoming interviews and rate us on itunes Again, you can find me on Twitter at LizFilm. You can find me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, Jim John, Jim, 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 And me at E.L. Booter. And all of us at No Film School. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>